that was an air raid siren from uh, Poland, but that's besides the point. So what we're going to be talking about today is, to me, the closest thing that I know of that, you know, happened in world history that I can elude the mystery, the mystery airships of the late 1800s to and the reactions of those uh, that witnessed them. So, you know, we've all heard of the Hindenburg, hopefully. That was a type of, that was like towards the very tail end of this whole phenomenon, but, you know, this all started out with the Zeppelins. Um, and big surprise, um, they um, were used in war. So, um, you know, like, imagine like a big dirigible, like hot air balloon being used to drop bombs on a World War One era British city. And that brings us to the Zeppelin air raids of World War One. A Zeppelin was a type of rigid airship named after the German inventor Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who pioneered rigid airship development at the beginning of the 20th century. His notions were first formulated in 1874 and developed in detail in 1893, which to me is fascinating because there was a rash of mysterious airship sightings in 1896 to 1897, mostly in the U.S., but there were reports in the U.K. and other parts of Europe. They were patented in Germany in 1895 and the U.S. in 1899. After the uh, outstanding success of the Zeppelin design, the word Zeppelin came to be commonly used to refer to all rigid airships. They were first flown commercially in 1910 by Deutsche Luftschiff AG, also known as DeLag. I'm sorry if I butchered that. I am half German, so I can, um, I guess, butcher my own uh, pronunciations of my... Yeah, well, I'm a hot-blooded American, so who cares. Uh, the world's first airline and revenue service. By mid-1914, DELAG had carried over 10,000 fare-paying passengers on over 1,500 flights. During World War I, the German military made extensive use of Zeppelins as bombers and as scouts, resulting in over 500 deaths in bombing raids in Britain. Which, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's very weird to me how many um like of these things were shot down like they just kept sending them um yeah uh so once again this ties into the uh <laughs> politics of the time the defeat of Germany in 1918 temporarily slowed the airship business, although DeLag established a scheduled daily service between Berlin, Munich, and Friedrich Schaffen in 1919. The airships built for this service eventually had to be surrendered under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which also prohibited Germany from building large airships. Like, I, I didn't even know that. <laughs> An exception was made uh, allowing the construction of one airship for the U.S. Navy, which saved the company from extinction. In 1926, the restrictions on airship construction were lifted, and with donations from the public, 
work began on the construction of the LZ-127 Graf Zeppelin. Um, but this all kind of ended with the Hindenburg blowing up um, in 1937, so it's kind of a moot point. But I, why, why I'm bringing up Zeppelins is... Before, you know, you think of the modern-day UFO, which really didn't surface until, you know, the Roswell um, reports, people were reporting these when they saw a UFO. They were reporting, quote-unquote, airships. I mean, sure, the designs of the airships, you know, varied wildly. But at the end of the day, this was still what is being described. So the principal feature of the Zeppelin's design was a fabric-covered rigid metal framework made up of transverse rings and longitudinal girders containing a number of individual gas bags. The, the advantage of this design was that the aircraft could be much larger than non-rigid airships, which relied on a slight overpressure within the single pressure envelope to maintain their shape. The framework of most Zeppelins was made of duralumin, a combination of aluminum and copper, as well as two to three other metals. Its exact content was kept a secret for years. Early Zeppelins used rubberized cotton for the gas bags, but most later used gold beater skin made from the intestines of cattle. The first Zeppelins had long cylindrical holes with tapered ends and complex multi-plane fins. During World War I, following the lead of their rivals, Schlute Lons Luftsbau, <laughs> I'm sorry. The design changed to the more familiar streamlined shape with cruciform tail surfaces as used by almost all later airships. They were propelled by several engines mounted in gondolas or engine cars, which were attached to the outside of the structural framework. Some of these could provide reverse thrust for maneuvering while mooring. Early models had a comparatively small externally mounted gondola for passengers and crew which was attached to the bottom of the frame. The space was never heated so passengers during trips across the North Atlantic or Siberia were forced to bundle themselves in blankets and fur were often miserable from the cold. So the reason why that space was never heated that fire outside the kitchen was considered too risky. So yeah. <laughs> um, so now we get to the air raids. Um, by the way, this is going to end with me uh, recounting two tales of these airships. One from November 26, 1896. And a cattle abduction so you have that to look forward to at the end so before the outbreak of world war one airships were the height of luxury travel no one imagined they could be used to bring death and destruction to the coastal towns of britain the first attack came on the night of january 19th 1915 when the german zeppelin l3 attacked and bombed great Yarmouth on the Norfolk coast, resulting in the death of two civilians. That same night, another Zeppelin attacked King's Lynn, and two more people died. If I had to guess, the main point of these Zeppelin air raids was to spread terror. I mean, like, just... Like, for God's sakes, you know, nowadays we're used to you know, flyovers, sink jets, um, helicopters, planes, whatever. I mean, like, Kelsey's like a pilot 
or well I mean you know he's done a lot of um he knows a lot about piloting and you know worked at an airport and yada 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 like you know we're we're so used to them just being a daily part of life but to these people like they didn't know what airships were you know I, I i just can't what sucks is it seems there's just like so few surviving firsthand accounts of people's reactions to these but i was able to find some of them so i won't come up totally um empty-handed so these airships were constricted from a rigid shell filled with hydrogen gas a flammable gas which could be highly explosive. Engines with propellers drove the airship forwards. Armed with five machine guns, the car Zeppelins carried a deadly payload of bombs. I didn't know they had machine guns. Wow. Um, more raids followed on May 31st, 1915. There was a Zeppelin attack on London, killing five people and injuring 35 Edinburgh was attacked by two Zeppelin airships on the night of the 2nd and 3rd of April 1916. I guess that's another thing that I should mention is, from what I understand at least, don't quote me on this, but um, most of these Zeppelin air raids happen at night, probably because they were... Um, harder to hit because the one problem of these zeppelins was like if you shot at them and pierced the like the dirigible they were very explosive <laughs> like they were like uh, yeah um like that's why the hindenburg was such a disaster is like the whole thing like just blew it was yeah so at first there was not much the British could do to counter this new airborne threat. The Zeppelins flew too high for the airplanes of the time to reach them to shoot them down. Their only real vulnerability was that the hydrogen gas bags used for lift were highly flammable. Ordinary bullets might pierce the gas bags, but something different was needed if the Zeppelins was to be made to explode. With the invention of the Buckingham incendiary bullet, which not only pierced these gas bags, but also ignited the hydrogen within them, the Zeppelin threat was eventually neutered. In June 1917, um, the German military stopped using Zeppelins for bombing raids over Britain, although a tremendous psychological weapon that actually caused little damage to the war effort. The 115 Zeppelins used by the German military... 53 were lost, and 24 were damaged beyond repair. In Britain, 528 people, mostly civilians, had been killed, and more than 1,000 wounded during the Zeppelin attacks. Hmm. I mean, it's just... These... <laughs> to me, it's fascinating, but I, I don't know. Um, so I'd like to just read some of these different uh, descriptions of what happened. So early German long-range uh, bombing. On August 6, 1914, the German Army Zeppelin Z6 bombed the Belgian city of Liège, killing nine civilians. Ten more died on a night attack on Antwerp on August 25th and September 2nd. In the first month of the war, Germany formed the Ostend Carrier Pigeon Detachment, a cover name for an elite air unit commanded by Major Wilhelm Siegert to be used for the bombing of the Channel ports, which new long-range aircraft became available. 
During the opening months of the war, a German fl pilot flying a Taub regularly dropped bombs on Paris. Um, yeah. Okay, so the first confirmed raid on Britain occurred on December 21st. At 1 p.m., a seaplane carrying four 4.4-pound 4 .4 bombs flown by a guy and his observer dropped two bombs into the sea near the Admiralty Pier in Dover. On 24th December, the winter was cloudy, slightly misty with a northeasterly breeze. Uh, those two appeared high over Dover. Um, <laughs> so, man, picking Brussels sprouts for his Christmas dinner as the object in the sky rushed past. Then his garden exploded and knocked him down, causing him superficial injuries. So no Christmas dinner for you, sir. As he got up, he saw a crater 10 by 4 foot where his sprouts had been. The windows of the house near the explosion had been broken, and a neighbor, James Banks, up a ladder collecting holly, had been thrown to the ground. The airship dropped a bomb near Dover Castle, which broke some glass, and a British pilot took off but failed to find the aircraft. Um... Wow. Okay, so now we get to 1915. Um, the Zeppelin raids. Um, so one guy, a Alfred von Turpitz, who wrote that, quote, The measure of the success will lie not only in the injury which will be caused to the enemy, but also in the significant effect it will have in diminishing the enemy's determination to prosecute the war. The campaign was approved by the Kaiser on January 7th, 1915, who had first forbade attacks on London, fearing that his relatives and the British royal family might be injured. <laughs> Following a failed attempt on January 13th, which was abandoned because of the weather, the first successful attempt took place on the night of January 19th, 20th, or and 20th of January. Two Zeppelins were to attack targets near the Humber Estuary, but were diverted by strong winds and dropped their bombs on Great Yarmouth, Sheringham, King Lynn's, in the surrounding Norfolk villages. Two British aircraft took off, but failed to find the airships. Four people were killed and 16 were damaged. And monetary damage was estimated at 7,700 euro at that time. I'm sorry, but like, how can you not spot the stupid big ass aircraft, airship dirigibles in the sky? Well, it's really cloudy out here, guys. I'm, I'm not seeing any airships. I'm going to turn around. Okay, whatever. Um, so the raid prompted alarmist stories about German agents using car headlights to guide Zeppelins to their targets. The first Navy attempts to bomb London made by L-8 failed due to poor weather. The first attempt was made on February 26th, but was... Um, canceled due to high winds. A second attempt ended when the airship flew below the cloud base to check its position and found itself over Belgian army positions near Ostend. The Zeppelin was riddled by small arms fire and landed near Tienen, where it was destroyed by high winds. A four-airship raid by the army on March 17th ran into fog and was abandoned. One airship bombing Calais and being damaged on landing. On March 20th, the three remaining army airships set off to bomb Paris, and one was lost on the return journey. Two Navy raids fell due to bad weather on 14th and 15th of April. 
airs decided to delay further attempts until the more capable P-class Zeppelins were in service. So this is just a theory, guys, but, like, I'm thinking that, like, all these Zeppelins that were lost, I mean, maybe they've rusted by now, but, like, what they, like, let's say they fell into the sea or whatever, it would just be that very narrow stretch of land, you know, the British Channel. So, like, I don't think it'd be hard to find one of these since there were so many that were lost, but I, I don't know. Um... So on the night of May 30th and 31st, um, Lenars commanded LZ-38 on the first London raid. LZ-37 was also be to be part of the raid, but it was damaged early on and returned to Narmer. Flying from Avir, LZ-38 crossed the English coast near Margate at 9.42 before returning west over South End. London police were warned of a raid around 11 p.m. A few minutes later, small incendiaries began to fall. These devices weighing 25 pounds were filled with thermite, which is a pyrotechnic composition of metal powder and metal oxide. When ignited by heat or chemical reaction, the thermite undergoes an exothermic reduction oxidation reaction. Uh... Most varieties are not explosive, but can create brief bursts of heat and high th temperature in a small area. Um, so about 120 of these bombs were dropped on a line from Stoke Newington South to Stepney, and then north towards Leytonstone. Seven people were killed and 35 were injured. 41 fires were started, burning out seven properties, and the total damage was assessed at um, a lot of euros, probably around 10,000 euros. No, probably 20,000. Where are the problems that the Germans were experiencing in navigation? The government issued a D notice prohibiting the press from reporting anything about attacks, not mentioned in official statements. Early press reports had contained detailed information about where bombs had stored had fallen. 15 sorties were flown against the raiders, only one of which managed to make visual contact with an airship, but no ground-based um, guns were fired, and no searchlights found the airship, and one British pilot was killed on landing. Hmm. So, to continue on, um, two army Zeppelins um, bombed London on September 7th and 8th of that same year. SL-2 dropped bombs on the Isle of Dogs, Deptford, Greenwich, and Woolwich. An LZ-74 was forced to drop weight on its approach and scattered 39 bombs over chess hunt before heading on to London and dropping bombs on Bermondsey, Rotherlith, and New Cross. 18 people were killed and 28 injured. Property damage totaled 9,600 euro, and fog and mist prevented British aircraft taking off, but anti-aircraft guns fired at LZ-74 with no effect. Although these raids had no significant military impact, the psychological effect was considerable. The Navy attempted to follow up the Army's success the following night. Three Zeppelins were directed against London and L9, against the Benzol plant at the Skidding Grove Ironworks. L9 arrived at the coast at Port Mulgrave between Whitty and Kettleness at about 9.15 and dropped six bombs with no result. The Zeppelin reached the ironworks at 9.35 and dropped 9 HE and 12 incendiary bombs, achieving a hit with an incendiary on the Benzol building, which failed to penetrate inside. An HE bomb 
fell within 10 feet and cut the water and electricity supply. But the 45,000 IMP gal was not affected. Another bomb hit a store of TNT but failed to explode. L9 crossed the coast on its homeward journey at Sands End at 9.45 p.m. Three RNAS pilots from Redcar had taken off but failed to make contact. It really seems like people are terrible at finding these Zeppelins. Which, I'm sorry, but it doesn't really make sense to me that they couldn't find these giant airships. It's like, well, it's really hard to see these giant things in the sky. L-11 had turned back early with engine trouble. L-13 and L-14 flew across the North Sea together. Two trawlers were waiting off the Hashboro light vessel and caught L-14 at low altitude. One of the travelers fired eight rounds from its uh, gun, which led Bakker into a steep climb under the impression that he had been engaged by light cruisers and turned north. Soon afterwards, L-13 also encountered a trawler, which opened fire. L-14 reached England at Cronin, then suffered engine trouble, apparently bombing Norwich, but hitting Bailau, East Dereham, and Scanning, Scarning. Four men were killed at East Durham, and seven people were injured, but no material damage. L-13 made landfall at the Wash and flew straight to London and clear skies, bombing Golders Green at 10.40 p.m. At Houston, L-13 began to bomb again, and the bomb load included a 660-pound device, the largest yet carried, which exploded on Bartholomew Close near Smithfield Market, destroying several houses and killing two men. More bombs fell on the textile warehouses north of St. Paul's Cathedral, causing a fire which, despite the attendance of 22 fire engines, caused over half a million pounds damage. Matthew then turned east, dropping his remaining bombs on Liverpool Street Station, 15 HE and 55 incendiaries being dropped. The Zeppelin at 9,000 feet was repeatedly caught by searchlights, and all 26 anti-aircraft guns in London opened fire, inducing the thing to zigzag and ascend to 11,000 feet. Every shell exploded too low, and the falling shell splinters caused alarm and damage on the ground. Oh, my God. Ah, this is very sad for the British. <laughs> um... Three RNAS pilots took off from Yarmouth, but had already landed by the time that L-13 headed out to sea. Flight Sub-Lieutenant G.W. Hillard landed at Bacton and was killed when the bombs on board exploded. Flight Lieutenant J.M.R. Cripps came down with engine failure and jumped clear of his aircraft before it touched down and suffered no injuries. The airplane being hardly damaged. The raid killed 22 people and injured 87. The monetary damage of 534,000 euros was one of over one-sixth of the total damage inflicted by bombing raids during the war. God, these are terrible. Um... I almost want to. Oh, okay. Here's some. Here's some good news for the British. So we'll we'll read some of those. Um, one raid came on October first, nineteen sixteen. Eleven Zeppelins were launched at targets in the Midlands and at London. Only L thirty one. On his 15th raid, reached London, overcame the weather. Approaching from Suffolk, L-31 was picked up by the searchlights at Kelvindon Hatch around 9.45, turning away. Once again, these are always at night. 
The airship detoured over Harlow, Stevenage, and Hatfield. As the airship neared Chestnut Hunt at about 11.20 p.m., it was quickly picked up by six searchlights. Three aircraft of 39 Squadron were in the air and closed in. A BE-2C piloted by 2nd Lieutenant Wollston Tempest engaged the Zeppelin at around 11.50 p.m. Three bursts were sufficient to set fire to it, and it crashed near Potter's Bar with all 19 crew killed, with the pilot Heinrich Mathy jumping to his death. His body was found near the wreckage embedded about four inches in the ground. Tempest had had to dive out of the way of the stricken airship and possibly suffered from anoxia, crash on landing through without injury. A raid on November 27th and 28th avoided London and the south of England, attacking targets in the Midlands and Tennessee. Halfway across the North Sea, L-30 turned back with engine trouble. The other airships crossed the sea in two groups. The first of five airships arriving between Scarborough and the Humber Estuary, and the other four heading for the Tyne. The bombing was largely ineffective, killed four people, injuring 37, causing 12,000 euro in damage. L-34 was shot down in flames off the coast of Hartle Pool by 2nd Lieutenant Ian Pyatt of 36th Squadron flying a B-2 Cessna. L-21 was shot down by three aircraft near Yarmouth. Um, good. And... So the following day, a LVG CIV, which is just a normal two-seat reconnaissance German biplane, made the first German airplane raid on London, hoping to hit the Admiralty. Um, they carried six 22-pound bombs that were dropped between Victoria Station and the Brompton Road. Um, yeah. I mean, just a lot of death and destruction and whatnot. But, um, so here's a, I guess, a quicker, um, summary of the Zeppelin raids. After the initial strike on London in May 1915, Zeppelins continued to hit the city with impunity, timing raids to coincide with good weather and moonless nights. Not wanting to foment panic, British civil authorities gave few air raid warnings beyond policemen on bicycles blowing whistles and shouting for people to, quote, take cover. Technology also limited what Britain could do to stop the Zeppelins early on in the war because its airplanes were unable to soar as high as the lighter-than-aircraft and machine gun fire had no effect. Londoners huddled in basements and descended deep underground in the city's tube stations to escape the terror from the skies. On September 8, 1915, the shadow of a sleek cigar-shaped Zeppelin passed over the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral and unloaded a three-ton bomb, bomb, the largest ever dropped at the time, on the city's financial hub. The attack caused massive damage and killed 22 civilians, including six children. Massive damage. The Zeppelin raid would be the worst of the war on London. The public now demanded more protection from the airships that they now refer to as, quote, baby killers. Britain instituted blackouts and installed massive searchlights. Anti-aircraft defenses were diverted from the front lines in France and positioned around the capital. Authorities drained the lake in St. James Park to prevent its nighttime glitter from directing zeppelins to nearby Buckingham Palace. And to build morale, Charlie Chaplin filmed a propaganda short, short <laughs> in which he brought down a zeppelin. The British also began to target the Zeppelin's major vulnerability, their highly flammable oxygen. By 1916, they had developed airplanes that could reach higher altitudes and fire 
explosive bullets, which could tear large holes into the Zeppelin's outer skin and allow oxygen to pour into the hydrogen chambers and incendiary bullets, which could light the volatile gaseous cocktail on fire. The new defenses were in place on uh, September 2nd, 1916, when the Germans launched their largest raid of the war with a fleet of 16 airships headed towards London. The searchlight scouring the skies caught one of the silver zeppelins sparkling in their beams, and Royal Flying Corps pilot William Leif Robinson soared over 11,000 feet and closed in on it. He raked the zeppelin with bullets that punctured the leviathan like harpoons, Suddenly it ignited like a torch and the fireball fell from the sky like a shooting star that could be seen for 100 miles around. Londoners cheered and sang patriotic tunes as the incinerated zeppelin plummeted to earth. Um, the tide had been turned. Other British pilots achieved similar success in shooting down airships. Strasser ordered his fleet to fly at higher altitudes but crews began to suffer from the frigid temperatures and became incapacitated from oxygen deprivation. The Zeppelin raids on London continued, but far less frequently. By 1917, uh, Germany began to deploy heavy biplane bombers in their stead. Um, so over the course of the war, um, German Zeppelin staged more than 50 attacks on Berlin, Britain, out a heavy price of 77 of the 115 craft shot down or disabled. And uh, so the total, the estimates that this source from History Channel gives is the German Zeppelin raids. On London killed nearly 700. You'll remember that the other one said 500-ish and seriously injured almost 2,000 people. Um, <laughs> so now I just... These are boring, but I would just like to read one um, of the telegrams, which one was a report of the raid by Major General Ferrier, Commander Humber Defenses, 1915. Um, and this is just verbatim. Information was received at 7.25 p.m., the two Zeppelins were in the North Sea. I attach a copy of the important messages receiving during the night equals A. At 9.30 p.m., I ordered all lights to be extinguished in Hull. At 11.47 p.m., Heaton, six miles from Hull, reported Zeppelin coming to Hull. And almost immediately, the engines were heard in his telephone office. My staff officer went outside the hotel and saw a Zeppelin overhead very distinct against a clear sky at a height estimated by him at 3,000 feet. He saw three bombs dropped as each one left the Zeppelin. The airship clearly lit up. He then reported to me and I heard five explosions. And I saw from my window that two fires had started. At 12.30 a.m., Brig General Dixon reported several fires. Um... One serious, which threatened Holy Trinity Church. Several casualties, but all details working very well. Paul reported that the Zeppelin had passed over at 12.15 a.m. Going southeast, counted 32 bombs dropped in whole city. All arrangements for collecting wounded and extinguishing fires worked very well. Great credit is due to the troops and fire brigade for saving whole Trinity Church, which was only 27 feet away from Messes, Davis Large Establishment, which was burnt to the ground. From reports received, I am of opinion that there were two airships in the vicinity of Hull, but only one dropped bombs. 
The casualties up to date are 19, five men, nine women, and five children killed, 24 seriously wounded, and 40 cases dealt with at dressing stations and sent to their homes. In conclusion, I beg to state I am submitting separately a letter giving my suggestions as to what is, in my opinion, urgently required in view of other rights. And this was from the National Archives from the government of UK. So thank you for publishing that. I, I love first-hand accounts. Okay, so you guys have been waiting for it. So here's the first one. The alien abduction of H.G. Shaw. One of the most incredible of all airship entity sightings came on November um, 25th, 1896 near Lodi, California. While traveling in a horse-drawn carriage, Colonel H.G. Shaw and Mr. Camille Spooner saw three very tall beings standing alongside the road. In the distance behind the creatures, a huge cigar-shaped UFO hovered quietly over a body of water. In an article in the Stockton Evening Mail, Colonel Saw said, quote, Looking up, we beheld three strange beings. They resembled humans in many respects, but still they were not like anything I had ever seen. They were possessed of a strange and indescribable beauty. He added that they wore no clothes, but their bodies were caught, covered by soft, fine fuzz. They were seven feet in height and very slender. I noticed further that their hands were quite small and delicate, and their fingers were without nails. Their feet, however, were nearly twice as long as those of an ordinary man, though they were narrow and the toes were also long and slender. I noticed, too, that they were able to use their feet and toes much the same as a monkey. In fact, they appeared to have much better use of their feet than their hands. As for other features, Shaw said, their faces and heads were without hair. The ears were very small, and the nose had the appearance of polished ivy, ivory, while the eyes were large and lustrous. The mouth, however, was small, and it seemed to me that they were without teeth. They were also extremely light, Shaw said. As one of them came close to me, I reached out to touch him, and placing my hand under his elbow, pressed gently upward, and lo and behold, I lifted him from the ground with scarcely an effort. I should judge that the specific gravity of the creature was less than that of an ounce. <laughs> he attempted to communicate with them. He asked, as where they were from, they seemed to not to understand me, but began, well, warbling expresses it better than talking. The re remarks, if you could call them, were addressed to each other and sound like a monotonous chant inclined to be guttural. In addition, the beings used several strange tools, including what seemed to be a machine to help them breathe. Each of them had swung the left arm under a bag to which was attached a nozzle, Every little while, one or the other would place the nozzle on his mouth, at which time I heard a sound of an escaping gas. The beings also carried another tool that was sort of like a lamp. Each held to his hand something about the size of a hen's egg. Upon holding them up and partly opening the hand, these substances emitted the most remarkable, intense, and penetrating light one can imagine. Notwithstanding its intensity, it had no unpleasant effect upon our eyes, and we found we could gaze directly at it. It seemed to me to be of some sort of luminous mineral, though they had complete control of it. The strange beings seemed to make an attempt to abduct the two people. One of them, at a signal from one who appeared to be the leader, attempted to lift Shaw, probably with the intention of carrying him away. Although I made not the slightest resistance, he could not move me. Finally, the three of them tried it without the slightest success. They appeared to have no muscular power outside of being able to move their own limbs. After the failed abduction attempt, the creatures moved toward a nearby canal. There, resting in the air about 20 feet above the water, was an immense airship. It was 150 feet in length, though probably not over 20 feet in diameter at the widest part. It was pointed at both ends and outside of a large rudder. 
there was no visible machinery. So once again, it's an airship. Um, pretty. I mean, yes, I guess you could argue that's the an early cigar-shaped craft, but it seems more like a um, airship. The beings seemed to glide as they went, sometimes not even touching the ground. Shaw said, The three walked rapidly towards the ship, not as you or I walked, but with a swaying motion, their feet only touching the ground at intervals of about 15 feet. We followed them as rapidly as possible and reached the bridge as they were about to embark. With a little spring, they rose to the machine, opened a door on the side, and disappeared within. The ship then went through the air very rapidly and expanded and contracted with a muscular motion and was soon out of sight. So the next is a cattle abduction. Ooh. Beginning in the... So, there's an account of cattle abduction back in the Old West, and it is humorously primitive compared to modern cattle abduction premises. The story first appeared in the April 23, 1897 edition of the Yates Center Farmer's Advocate, a Kansas-based newspaper. It was late at night when one Alex Hamilton, a Leroy, Kansas rancher, awoke to a strange noise coming from outside. His cattle sounded as if something were scaring them badly. He ran to the door and could see an airship slowly approaching his cattle from the air. According to Hamilton, the airship was cigar-shaped and had a carriage underneath it. The carriage, he said, looked to be made of glass and was illuminated within. Inside of it were, quote, three of the strangest beings, Hamilton had ever seen two men, a woman, and three children. However, what made these beings so strange, he never elaborated on. He called his son Wall and another man that lived on the ranch for assistance. The three men grabbed some axes and ran for the corral. As they ran closer to the airship, they could hear the beings talking in a strange language, which they could not understand. The strange craft then showed a bright spotlight on the group and got closer. It was then that the three men noticed a poor calf with a cable around its neck being hauled up into the airship. For the moment, the poor calf seemed to be caught in the fence, so the trio of men bravely tried to cut her loose, but it was no use. They could not cut the cable and watch helplessly as the airship drifted away from them, taking the poor calf with them. The next day, Link Thomas, who lived several miles from the Hamilton farm, found the calf's butchered remains on his property. There were no tracks around it, so it was as if it had been lowered or dropped to the ground from the air. Soon the newspapers picked up on the story and created quite a stir. There was even an affidavit attesting to his honesty, which said, As there are now, always have been, and always will be, skeptics and unbelievers. Whenever the truth of anything bordering on the improbable is... Presented and knowing that some ignorant or superstitious people will doubt the truthfulness of the above account. Now, therefore, we, the undersigned, do hereby make the following affidavit that we have known Alex Hamilton um, from 15 to 30 years, and that for truth and veracity have never heard his word questioned, and that we do verily believe his statement to be true and correct, which... You know, it's pretty interesting that, you know, I think people cared a lot more about their standing in the local community and how they were seen by their local uh, people. Uh, so... Um, 
so <laughs> another similar story to this is that actually predates one is that it occurred in 1896 and took place on a farm in Howell County, Missouri. The story was told by an old woman, Pearl Chenoweth, to the Missouri Historical Society before she died in 1984. At the time of her UFO sighting in 1896, Pearl was a young girl who, along with her brother Ben, saw a bright circle of lights, quote, swirling around in the air. The two siblings ran to get their parents in. Together, they all watched the saucer-like object hover over the family barn with a blinding light. The family ran to their living room in fear, where they prayed for safety. Later, Pearl's father got up to go look outside, and the craft was gone. The next day, the family went out to investigate the spot where the UFO or lights had been hovering. They were shocked to find burnt grass and three dead uh, steers. They described the dead steers as, quote, completely drained of blood. The only marks on them were some dried blood on their throats from two puncture holes in the jugular. These looked as though they had been made by a two-time fork. Pearl Chenoweth continued to relate how the newspaper from St. Louis related several similar stories all happening on the same night across Missouri. In each case, a bright circle of light hovered over the cattle, and no matter how many cattle there were to take, the next morning only three were found on each ranch dead, all drained of blood just like the cows found by Pearl and her family. Some speculated whatever was killing the cattle were blood-sucking extraterrestrials, in other words, alien vampires. However, researchers today have never been able to find these newspapers that Mrs. Chenoweth described. This leads some to say that she got her dates wrong, and therefore that specific newspaper issue is harder to find. Um, so some people think she meant 1897, but either way, these are some cool early on uh, UFO sightings. So anyways, this has been your host, Luke. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, hope you have a good weekend. I'm releasing this on a Friday, so hope you have a good weekend and I am tired. I'm going to go to bed. Have a good night. Uh, check out some of my other podcasts on alien abductions and the mystery airships and i'm actually going to do a couple more podcasts on this particular subject because i really like <laughs> talking about ufos before what we all know today as of ufos so yeah have a good night <laughs>